0: Welcome to this special season of Libya Matters, where we reflect on the life and death of Salwa Bogagis and what it teaches us about Libya today, the state of human rights, the battle for the rule of law and the resilience of civil society. Expect to hear voices of people on the ground, civil society, journalists and activists. In this episode, we'll be looking back at the role of women in the Libyan uprising and the birth of civil society in Libya. Salwa was seen by many to be one of the leaders of the civil society movement, and she was a role model for many women who were perhaps entering the public and political space for the first time. We will be discussing what has happened to the women, who were so prominent in Libya's civil society in 2011, and looking at how the landscape for women has developed since, including their ability to participate freely and meaningfully in public and political life.
1: it's very it's very clear that you don't belong there and if you don't stop we'll go ahead and kill you so it's a, another learned tactic from the Gaddafi years this is what we do to people who we we would like to silence either we drive them out of the country and they did i'm here i was planning on staying home and doing things with Libya. either we drive you out or we kill you so it was a very clear message
2: Before we unpack the meaningful participation of women in Libya today and civil society, let's first take a look at the landscape for women before and after the 2011 uprising. What was it like for women under the Gaddafi regime? Uh, What were the barriers that women faced during that time? And, I mean, there's a lot of misconceptions, right, and understandings of of, of what life was like for women under the Gaddafi regime. Ilham, do you remember what it was like for women during that time? Oh, I do. I can definitely say something on the perception of women at that time.
0: And I think there's there's a lot of false pretense there, Um, sort of smoke and mirrors, if you like. There was this widely held belief, particularly in the international community, that women had it pretty good in Libya, You know, Libya became the first country uh, in the region and actually it was the only country until the Arab Spring to sign the optional protocol to the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. But behind all of this, the domestic laws in Libya still really discriminated against women. And the society remained extremely conservative. For example, the nationality law, which did not grant Libyan women married to non-Libyans the right to confer their nationality onto their children, was never repealed fully, although it was promised to be by the regime. But that's
2: exactly it, Ahem. I think one thing that Gaddafi didn't have a problem with is signing all these international conventions and the protocols, and um, and so on the outside, it looked like we're very progressive. We're you know, you know, Libya is. Uh, has ratified, and, and they never reported no, on any of the um, conventions that they, that they signed. Uh, discrimination against women still exists today in Libya's legislative framework. That law that you mentioned, Elham, remains in use even in, in post-2011 uh, Libya. The executive authorities have not done enough to guarantee the equal rights of women prohibiting violence against them, including smear campaigns and reputational damage, and tackle the gendered impact of the conflict. In fact, I think that there were many factors that drove women and uh, women's rights activists to take to the streets in 2011. Uh, It was largely, yes, the demand for uh, freedom and equality in law, but also in practice. So it shouldn't be overlooked the key role that women played in driving the uprising. In fact, I think that there is a story to be told. They have their own narrative that is lost amongst all the other uh, narratives today. And that story includes their role in the electoral and constitutional process, as well as um, in the peace negotiations and mediation at the local level, as we heard earlier. This doesn't translate into meaningful representation, unfortunately, at the national and international level. Women have have been systematically excluded. We know that. We've, we've voiced this. We've spoken about it. And what's even more absurd is that the international bodies have in the past cited conservative cultural norms as the reason and excuse for excluding women.
0: And of course, our listeners will remember from our conversation with Leila La'odat back in episode seven, and her reflections on the Palermo conference and how they forgot to include women. I think that was the term she used. Um, Well, they forgot until some very effective lobbying from women's activists. But the problem is there's like no learning from mistakes. And the same thing happened again in the context of the LPDF, of course. I mean, I don't want to make you go through it again, Maruab. What I meant here is the Libyan Political Dialogue Forum. For those who want to hear my full rant about the shortcomings of the LPDF, um, they can listen to our special episode
2: on that. More recently, some serious efforts have been made, right, to address this issue by putting quotas in for women uh, to ensure better representation in the government, But what we've seen is that they're often introduced without genuine commitment. They're more tokenistic, if you will.
0: And actually, we saw that in the roadmap, it was trying to address that specific problem you raised, right? That it's um, not tokenistic, that it was meaningful. So they referenced that 30% of the government of national unity had to have women at the leadership position. But of course, despite the relative wins of having two women in very high ministries, we're just around still sailing around the 15% of those positions. And even then, they're quoting the same things that they did in Palermo, which is, well, this is a conservative society.
2: And this brings me to a point that I think is important to raise here, which is these two separate narratives around the role women have played in uh, the uprising in Libya and, and everything after that. The first one is that um, there hasn't been any real um, meaningful participation simply because they were never invited to the table. The second narrative is that, no, in fact, women were very involved in in the process from the early days, but following the waves of, the waves of attacks against them, they withdrew from the public space and largely from the political space too. I think that both narratives are actually very true.
0: Exactly. And I think that is, it, it's all false narrative to say that it's either one or the other, right? In my opinion, um, they weren't sufficiently at the table. And then further things happened that made them withdraw from the table. And a key turning point in, in a couple of levels um A first turning point, in my mind, was actually around 2012. Well, actually not around 2012, I know exactly when it was. It was the speech that was made um, after the liberation of Tripoli or after the fall of Gaddafi, when the then Prime Minister, I mean, I didn't even need to tell you this, right, (laughs) came on stage and gave this speech at this really crucial moment in the country's transition, and his focus was on the right of men to have multiple wives. And his declaration that he was going to um, repeal the restrictions on that in Libyan law. And although it feels like a, it's just so as a as a topic, it was a real indicator to women. And I think the women heard that message louder than anyone. That this is where women's rights are going to be heading in Libya. And in retrospect, I think for me, that was the first sign of things turning. And that was sort of 2012. And then the situation became very clear, violently, from 2014, when we saw women's voices, um, you know, were not only drowned out by the sound of the conflict, the bombs and everything else where, you know that was predominantly led by men, but also that human rights defenders became vulnerable to violent reprisals, and especially women were targeted um, because of long-standing attitudes towards women and where they should be in society. I mean... You know, you can still see that in the nature of the attacks. And and an interesting thing that has come out in the story of of Salwa that we heard is the reference to the fact that that was the first attack that was in someone's home. And I think that we can't detach from that because that was a violation of her privacy as a woman. And I think it was deliberate, in my opinion, that that was done that way. But all this action sort of from the legislative element and what seemed like such a such a strange speech to the violence, to the, generally in the country, to the violence against women. All this sensibly, logically would cause women to retreat from political and public life. I mean, we did, right? When was the turning
2: point for you? I mean, for me, the turning point is Saro It shook a nation, really, uh, in terms of the attack, the brutal attack against a woman. And like you said, Alham, in her home sent the signal that nothing is off-limits at this point in time. And so I have consciously retracted, absolutely, um, from, from that public space.
1: I used to cover, of course, I used to do like my own show back then. It's a news show as well. And I used to cover all these topics. They knew my building. A group of gunmen came to the building and they talked to my neighbors. Uh, they threatened my dad. I got messages, but I didn't care about them, like online. I didn't mind. I just blocked block people and that's it. But when it came to this point, uh, it was bad because they threatened my dad. And they talked also to every one of my neighbors. Uh, these people about me coming to Libya they should they, they should warn me to not come to Libya. And then they put my name also on the airport. Because of that, because um war is going on and we used to cover it, so I couldn't go to Libya for for a lot, for, for a lot of years. I couldn't go to Tripoli.
0: And I think what's a really big turning point on these events in 2014, first with Selwa, which we're reflecting on in, in this season, but following Selwa's attack, there was a a similar attack, or at least another assassination of another um, Libyan politician, Fariha al-Barkawi, who was assassinated, presumably because she reacted to and questioned what happened to Selwa. And I think the impact of those attacks goes you know, it goes beyond the victims and their loved one. It has a very specific message that's being sent and it has a domino effect on society. And, and you know, women feel as if really the only safe option for them is to pull out and it's understandable. And they're also encouraged to do that as if somehow it's for the greater good for them to, you know, to kind of leave the scene and protect themselves and protect their families. I think that is unfair and undue and misplace pressure on the women to solve the problem of the violence against them, right? You're accusing the victim or you're making the victim have to react. And I think actually where the pressure should be and what we keep talking about and certainly what Salwa's family are telling us they want is pressure on the state to do this properly and for women to be made safe so that they can genuinely participate in in politics and in public life.
2: If you're listening to this episode and wondering how you can support women human rights defenders who are under attack for their involvement in the civic and political space, then you can do that by supporting the Ali Noh Fund. This is a fund created by LFJL to provide emergency assistance to human rights defenders who are at risk due to their work. Every penny you donate will go to support human rights defenders in Libya. We believe that one of the best ways to secure Libya's future is by protecting its human rights defenders. So join us in doing so by giving what you can to the Ali Noh Fund. To find out more, click on the link in the episode description or visit alinohfund.ly. That's A-L-I-N-O-U-H fund.ly. Thank you. And now back to the episode. We've been talking about the participation of women between
0: 2011 and 2014 so far, but we want to reflect on the whole 10 years since the uprising. So should we turn now our attention to what happened in more recent times?
2: Absolutely. But just right before we do that at Ham, let's bring this back to 2014 for a moment. I think it is important that we take a moment before uh, we move on to, to reflect on the women that are still fighting the good fight. Right. So, despite the danger, despite the closing of space, the, the attacks, the harassment, the um, there are those women who didn't stand down, and I think that we need. It is important that we kind of recognize that not every woman retracted, and there are many who are still in there and continue to do so.
1: So I couldn't go to Libya for. Well, for a lot of years. So we need to understand what is it exactly do we mean by women's rights? You offended them in one way or another, and they have the capacity to uh, punish you, they will. It it just didn't feel real. Uh, And for almost a week after that, I, I couldn't process it.
0: And there are some more exciting developments as well that we're seeing. Something I'm really keen to mention is a new law that's being drafted on violence against women, the fact that that law is being drafted is is an achievement in its own right, but the fact that it was started by a group of women academics from Benghazi who uh, lobbied for it, created the first draft, then brought it to uh, international actors in the UN and, and others to help develop it is is exciting in, as well. Even more so is that now the people finalizing the draft is a group of about 12 people that are mostly women, lawyers, prosecutors, judges, academics, activists, and there's this real sense of camaraderie in that group that I've not seen anywhere else recently. And it's because there's a genuine feeling that this pain, this violence that we've all suffered and that we've all seen, and, and especially those on the ground are, are, are experiencing at a very different level, they're turning that into a very well-informed law that highlights the things, that specifies the dangers in Libya. And I think, and no spoilers here, and I really hope I don't jinx it, but I really think that if this law... In the current draft that it's in, is anywhere near what we see in the final draft. And this is not just groundbreaking and progressive for Libya, but I think it is for the region and possibly internationally because you know it recognizes a lot of a lot of violations and a lot of violence against women that doesn't exist in most legislation. So I, I get very emotional about this because it's like the antidote to the hell that is the LPDF for me to be working on something so positive and seeing women come together find power in the pain that has been suffered and almost doing it to honor those women who have paid the highest price for us to continue to be acting in civil society by making sure that no one else gets away with that kind of crime again.
2: That sounds very promising and ham and, um, and actually very exciting. I hate to be the Debbie Downer, uh, but there we do still have a long way to go. And I think that... Um, you know, recognizing that is, is, is important, looking at the attacks on women that haven't stopped. Women continue to risk their lives to carry out their work. In November last year, lawyer and political activist Hanan Barasi was shot and killed in Benghazi in broad daylight. And then just four months later, her daughter was kidnapped in Benghazi and her whereabouts remain unknown. The list goes on. And when talking about violence against women, we have also to mention the widespread and dangerous pattern of online violence that is largely overlooked and ignored, particularly by the Libyan authorities. This is perceived to be just as serious as offline violence. And I think it's also important to note that in, in Libya, Uh, in the current state, that that violence usually translates from online to offline due to the breakdown in the rule of law. So the online violence against women is extremely prevalent in Libya. It it includes text-based abuse, online harassment, image-based sexual abuse, and the publication of personal information. These things have an extremely damaging effect. Research has told of numerous victims that online violence has had a negative psychological effect on them, such as anxiety, panic attacks, and issues of sleeping. And it's just as terrifying as the fear of of offline violence.
1: I found that people don't understand their rights and not able to actually reach their rights. I also realize that society lacks a great awareness of, especially women. Because women in our society are economically unstable and are not independent. They are blackmailed and expoliated by other men and women. This affects women's freedom and status.
2: And yet, despite all of this, women continue on the fight for representation equal in democratic society and inclusion. While you've been talking,
0: Marwa, I'm thinking actually that this conversation is more relevant than ever as we're approaching this supposed election at the end of the year. For that election to be positive, it absolutely needs to have a genuine representation for women and a more gender-balanced environment for women. And for that process to work, we need to make sure that women are able and they feel safe and and the environment exists where they can question take part in the national debate and actually to be able to stand for office as well and for more technical things to be fixed too like the ability of women to register regardless of their marital or any other social status which is still hindering the process for them and so there is sort of practical obstacles there's really substantial obstacles but all of them are real obstacles that we must overcome if this election is going to be any different to the previous ones Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying this special season of Libya Matters and are as inspired by Libya's resilient civil society as we are, then please support the Ali Noor Fund, an emergency assistance fund set up by LFJL to support human rights defenders under attack for their work. To find out more, click on the link in the episode description. And whilst you are there, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This will help us get discovered and to keep growing. To let us know what you think or to suggest any guests or topics for future seasons, please contact us on our Facebook page at Libya Matters or tweet us at Libya Matters Pod. Libya Matters is hosted by Marwa Mohammed and me, Ilham Saoudi. It is produced by Tariq al The people who put this season of Libya Matters together are Marwa Mohammed, Tim Molyunu, May Thompson, and me, Ilham Saoudi. This episode of Libya Matters is made possible by our partnership with the German Federal Foreign Office and additional support from International Media Support, IMS, and Dignity, the Danish Institute Against Torture. Hi, I'm Aisha Lynch and I work on LFJL's operations team. All of us at LFJL are sincerely grateful to Salva's family and friends and all of our friends and partners in Libyan civil society who have given us their time and trust to tell this story. This series is only possible because of you and is a tribute to you. On behalf of the whole team, thank you.